Last night, I, I was laying in bed, and I, I started to think through a list of all of my failures. Anyone ever do this? <laughs> uh, not just going through all of my failures. That would take too long. But uh, I was thinking specifically around music-related failures, because I like to explore my failures and themes, uh, you know. Um, and I used to play and write music, fun fact. Uh, not well, but hence me laying in bed thinking about all my failures related to music and songwriting. Um, so I was thinking through a song. I remember thinking specifically about a song that I wrote, and I performed in a band that we had. I just, you know, there was so much about that performance. And it was actually a lot of people there uh, that I was like, you know, that's, that's embarrassing. We shouldn't have done that song. That was a stupid song. It's silly. I, I think of another couple songs I wrote and I performed, and there were nobody there when I was performing them. And it wasn't with a band. It was by myself. It was really embarrassing stuff. And then I started shifting, and I was thinking about all these shows that I helped put on. In high school, I was, help, I was a part of a youth ministry, and so we put on concerts. And we put on one that was supposed to be like the big, biggest concert our little town had ever had. And, and it was big. Um, in vision and not in people, and oh, it was so embarrassing. And so I was laying in bed, and I was thinking about how embarrassing all of this was um, when I remembered, this is literally what I'm talking about today. How we handle failure. Last week, I posted a question on Facebook. Uh, it said, how have you handled failure in your life? Let me put that question up. How have you recovered from failure? Yeah, there we go. So as Alexander Pope once wrote in a poem, to err is humane, to forgive is divine. To err is human. It's the, it's the one thing we all have in common. Um, we've all failed. I think of Oprah's you know, game show, like, you get to fail, and you get to fail, and you get to, we all get to fail. It's one of the ways of thinking about what it means to be human. You know, we fail. We fail ourselves. We fail others. We fail God. Um, I'm sure this is the uplifting message you wanted to get today. But that's okay. What's important is learning how to handle failure, what, what we do with it, which leads to my question, how have you handled failure in your life? Quite a few people chimed in. I can't share all of their responses. I want to share a few because there's quite a bit of wisdom. Um, I guess there is wisdom on Facebook if you know where to look. Um, but uh, here's uh, what Pam Spence said. Uh, she's a writer friend of mine. She's from uh, England. Uh, what I learned from my mother, we are English, who was 18 and serving in the women's army as a spotter, citing incoming enemy traffic and calling out coordinates to the ACAC guns in London during the Blitz. Sometimes, she would say, you just need a good cry. Then you get up wash your face, get on with it. That advice has served me well in life, littered as it has been with successes and failures in roughly equal measure. Have a good cry, then get up, wash your face, and do what needs to be done. A good cry and get on with it. When's the last time you had a good cry? And uh, um, sometimes that's all you need. Sarah Wellman, her uh, husband is pastor at Saito Ridge United Methodist Church. She said, I fail almost daily as a mom and educator. I if I focused on only those failures, it would be difficult to keep going. When those failures start to fill me with negative self-talk each night, so I'm not the only one who has negative self-talk at night. There's something about night that makes this really easy to do. Um, I remind myself that the only thing I can do about it is apologize when needed and try to do better the next day. Apologize when needed and then try to do better. It's good advice. Christina Moore, another writer friend of mine, she said, I also remind myself to acknowledge success in others because I know how painful it is when people constantly acknowledge failure yet fail to tell someone when they've done a good job. Whew. I really love this one because failures tend to just sit with us a lot longer than success. 
You know, we remember, you could have a whole day full of success, but you do one big failure and it becomes that core memory, uh, you know, Pixar movie. It's like, it could be stupid. You could have done so many great things and then you did this one silly thing like wave at somebody that you thought was waving at you, but they're waving at the person behind you. And then that becomes your core memory. Have you seen this meme? Yeah, so we have to do a better job of encouraging each other. We only point out failures. They'll sit with us a lot longer than, than the good stuff. Uh, Natalie Dunkel, who used to work at our church in Athens, she said, not, not to be corny or cliche, but it has made me much more resilient, a creative risk taker, solution focused, and unflappable. I love that. Uh, once you realize that things not working out the way you want it isn't the worst thing that can happen to you and that life goes on, you either find ways to make it work. And I, I, I imagine this might have been a grammatical error, but I actually really love it. She says, you know, either you find ways to make it work or you don't is, is I think, where it's headed. But I love that she just left off the or you don't. Like, you either find ways to make it work, period. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you just have to. Like, that's, that's life. That's how this works. So, and, and, and this is the last one. This is my friend Adam Brooks. He's, he's a bit of a, a sage, um, a very uh, uh, in, interesting thinker. Uh, he says, cultivating compassionate awareness in myself through contemplative practices like meditation has been the most impactful thing for the times I have failed in both handling it and recovering. And I love that phrase, cultivating compassionate awareness. That's a, that's a quote you can hold on to. One way of thinking about it is the old uh, classic bumper sticker phrase, has failure made you bitter or better? You know, has it made you more compassionate towards yourself and other people, or has it made you more judgmental towards yourself and other people? Now, I think compassion is something we really can cultivate, especially as it relates to failure. And that's what I want to do in this two weeks series. I want to talk about failure. But I also want to learn how to cultivate a little bit of compassion as it relates to failure. I find that if we can cultivate compassion for others and their failure and for ourselves, we'll be that closer to the beloved community, the authentic community that, that God is interested in building. So we're going to look at two biblical stories about failure. One story this week and one story next week. They're both uh, stories where the characters begin as good people. They're called by God. They're set apart by God. They're doing what God wants them to do. But even though that's where their story starts, both stories end in failure. And because they end in failure, regardless of how they started, they are often painted as villains in the biblical narrative. They're the bad guys. You know, they're, they're looked down on and they're used as examples of, of what not to do. But today, I want to look at their stories, and next week, I want to look at their stories and help them become a little bit more human. Um, not to judge them, but to really understand, because I think we can actually relate with them more than we'd like to admit. So today, we're going to look at the first king of Israel, King Saul. And next week, we're going to look at the story of Judas. Maybe these are names you've uh, been familiar with in the past. These two have a lot in common, um, even if they are separated by a 1,000 years. And it's not just that they mess up. In, in all that they do, they don't do anything worse than any other good guy in Scripture. King David, who replaces uh, Saul, is far worse. I mean, he kills, he rapes, he cheats. He's, he's not a good dude. And Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, just like Judas, rejects Jesus, denies Jesus in a different but also not so different way than Judas. No, Judas and Saul aren't failures because of what they do only, in my opinion, but how they handle it. It's not that they fail, it's how they handle their failure that ultimately ruins them. And because of the way they handle failure, 
their journey ends in the same place. Their journey, their stories end with suicide. They feel that their failure becomes insurmountable. They believe that their failure is final and they can't go on. And they reach this ultimate desperation and they believe the lie that it's final and they choose to end it. Now, when I started preparing for the series, I didn't realize that uh, Saul and Judas both committed suicide. I, I, I had forgotten that fact. Um, and then Alyssa reminded me, because I knew Judas, of course, but I'd forgotten that about Saul. And she reminded me. And when I, so then I connected those dots. And I wasn't sure really what to do with that. Honestly, I'm not prepared to deal with the, the, the topic of suicide uh, in depth um, uh, as it relates to failure. That's obviously a very big conversation. But I will say this. Suicide has been painted by the Christian faith, especially certain denominations and traditions, as the unforgivable sin. The worst failure, the worst sin, a one-way ticket to hell, even, in some places. Um, And I just want to say, I don't believe that at all. I believe that in Christ, as the scriptures say, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not even death is what scriptures say. Paul's very clear about this. Not even death. He doesn't qualify certain kinds of death. No, there's no qualifications. Not even death can separate us from the love of God, period. So let me just say definitively that the title of this series is Failure Isn't Final. We are resurrection people. We follow a God who conquered death that even in suicide, I believe failure isn't final. That God's got us and that God's got this. So whether we've messed up in a thousand small ways, (laughs) saying hi to someone who you thought was talking to you, or in the worst way possible, I believe that failure isn't final. And that's that's because failure is what you do, not who you are. And this is important. And this is the whole point that I'm going to try to spend the entire next two weeks unpacking. Failure is what you do. It is not who you are. And in God's eyes, your mistakes and shortcomings never define you. You are not a sum of your mistakes. You are a child of God, created in God's image, and you are beautiful, mistakes and all. And with that in mind, let's look at the story of Paul, who I wish someone would have told this to. Let's look at how he handles failure. So Saul was the first king of Israel. His story is found in the uh, book of 1 Samuel. At this time, the people of Israel were asking God for a king. God didn't want to give them a king. God wanted to be their king. Uh, But God relents, and they eventually just convinced God to give them a king. It's a fascinating little story. If you're not familiar with the opening uh, stories of 1 Samuel, uh, God eventually says, fine, you want a king, even though they're going to be the people that eventually oppress you. Uh, You can have a king. And a local leader, he was a judge, but also sort of a prophet, by the name of Samuel, hence the name of the book, um, he is uh, told by God to go uh, anoint a king. And he's led by God to anoint a young man named Saul. And Saul becomes royalty through this pouring of oil and prayer, which is uh, pretty profound. He's the first king in a startup kingdom. And he has one job. He's got to overcome his enemies. Now, I'm not a fan of war. I don't think war is necessary for peace. I'm an aspiring pacifist. I say aspiring because I still have a lot of work to get there, but I'm, I'm, I'm working it. I'm trying. Now, war becomes a hang-up for people who, who, have, uh, who fell in love with God through the New Testament. Uh, we love Jesus' teaching on loving our enemies. And so what do we do with the Old Testament teachings where God literally asks them to defeat their enemies? Where is God in that? And that's a tricky question. And I know there's a lot of ways to deal and think about it. Um, maybe it reflects the evolution of God's revelation 
in Scripture. Maybe it's rooted in justice or even overcoming evil. That's how some people see it. Maybe it was a, the biblical writers, you know, imprinting or their own perspectives into the text and into history. And maybe we don't have an answer. And I'm fine with a little bit of mystery. All that to say, whatever the reason, Saul needed to defeat his enemies, and he's not very good at it. Good at other things, but not very good at it. So God calls a new person into the story who will, David. And we have this beautiful little story that maybe you're familiar with, David and Goliath. David rises up as a little shepherd and takes down this big old brood of a soldier, a large soldier that's supposed to be really strong. Malcolm Gladwell has written a really great book on David and Goliath. The whole opening chapter talks about it and uh, how weaknesses are actually strength. I recommend it. It's a great book. Not what we're going to talk about today, though. So David becomes this great uh, warrior and eventually this great general. And while Saul is still king, David is kicking butt. And that's where our story begins. This is the pivoting point for Saul. He moves from the beloved first king of Israel, someone called by God, anointed by God, to the guy who would feel like such a failure that he would take his own life. This is the moment where it shifts. One of the moments. It's obviously never binary like that, but it's one of the one of the more profound moments where that shift happens. And that's what we want to zero in. So if you have your Bibles, you can go there. It'll also be on the screen. 1 Samuel chapter 18, starting with verse 5. The text is talking about David and Saul's relationship as it relates to the mission that they're on. And here's what it says. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all of the troops, and Saul's officers as well. So we start the story, and we realize that David is doing a really good job. The troops love him. The officers love him. Not just the officers, but Saul's officers love him. People that might be higher up in rank than David. He is well-loved. In fact, in this chapter, it becomes very apparent. Four different times, the text talks explicitly, says explicitly, that David is loved. Now, in the context of the great story of Scripture, one of the things you have to know is that David is the Bible's, one of the Bible's favorite characters. They ever, King David, the throne of David being preserved. Jesus references David. I mean, David is like one of the heroes. So, so here we see just in one chapter, he is loved, and it is said that he is loved four different times. Now, to be clear, David is only doing what the king is asking him to do. And he's only advancing in the ranks because the king is promoting him, which is the hierarchy of how kingdoms and military work. David's success, in other words, is really an expression of Saul's success, right? Because David is somebody working for Saul, and he is advancing, and Saul is promoting him. So technically, David... Is making should make Saul look really successful, or at least that's one way to look at it. But anytime that someone outshines someone with a higher rank or is loved more than the person with a higher rank, tension is going to exist, and this story is no exception. Verse 6. When the men are returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres, and they danced And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. (laughs) Saul, our our king, is great, but have you seen David? That guy's amazing. Now, Saul is king, and he's the first king of a kingdom. I mean, and and being the first is hard. Startups are hard, and trust me, I know. 
Um, they are, by definition, a breeding ground for insecurity. Because it's hard to just know, even know how you're doing. You don't have anything to compare it to. So you, you, it's just a breeding ground for insecurity. And, and to make it worse, God didn't even want them to have a king. And what are the chances Saul knew that? He only gave them a king because they begged for one. That makes the role of king even harder because you've got to prove to God that it was worth it, that it was a good idea. So much pressure and so much mess and so much stress and tension. And then comes this little guy who hasn't done anything to build the actual kingdom. He just happens to be good in battle. He's really good at killing people, which at this time is something that people love to praise. And well, like any action hero, he makes, it makes him popular with the ladies, makes him popular with the people. He's a war hero. Saul isn't even at most of the battles. He's busy running the kingdom, as he should be. I mean, uh, what you'll see is when David becomes king, he's not at all the battles either. That's how the whole Bathsheba thing happens. So this isn't unusual. The king has a lot of other things besides waging war. In fact, if kings focused on things other than waging war, the world would be a better place. But that's a sermon for another day. So David is popular, and they're singing songs. And the songs about him are comparing David to Saul unfairly, in my opinion, but that's what they're doing. And that's the first lesson we have in failure. At this point, I don't think Saul was a failure. He hasn't done much wrong. Was he perfect? No. But he was fine. He was a good enough leader to attract the talents of someone like David. I mean, the fact that Saul has war heroes under his rule was really a testament to his leadership, in my opinion. But the people loved David. And the people begin to compare, if only in song, if only in this poetic way, they compare David to Saul, and that's the first lesson in failure. Comparison will make it feel like you failed, even if you haven't. Comparison will make you feel like you failed, even if you haven't. If you want to feel like you failed, Even if you've never, you know, you're not really failing, but if you want to feel like it, which I don't know why you would, but if you want to feel, find someone who's doing it better than you and compare yourself to them, and you'll feel like you failed. I mean, if you're in the mood to feel like a failure, just start comparing yourself to other people. You don't even have to be doing anything wrong. You don't have to fail at anything, but if you compare yourself to others, even if you haven't failed, you will likely feel like a failure. Unless you're doing a better job, then you'll just view them as a failure. Comparison is a sure way to let failures, feelings of failure creep in, and comparison is a sure way to make you feel like a failure. Sometimes when you feel like a failure, we're not actually failing. We're just comparing ourselves to people we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to. This goes back to the previous series on many gifts. Friends, we are all different. We have different gifts, and we have different roles, and we offer different things. And just like Paul says when he talks about the body of Christ is like a body, the eye shouldn't compare itself to a foot. That's silly. They have different roles and they have different gifts. See, the people aren't going to help Saul in this. They plant a thousand seeds of comparison, and it would be hard not to take it personally. The troops love David. The officers love David. The people love David. They all love David. But hear me out, and this is tricky. Just because they all love David doesn't technically mean that they don't don't also love Saul. See, what's interesting in this text is nowhere in the text do they say the people didn't love Saul. It's not mentioned in the negative. It's just mentioned that they love David. Now, Saul, what we'll see in the story, kind of takes that away and says, well, they must not love me because they love David. 
And you know what? I think we tend to approach life thinking that love and other things like love are an exhaustible resource. Like there's only so much love to go around or so much praise to go around or so much recognition to go around. And so if someone says they love someone else, they must not love me. Or if someone praises someone else, well, then they must not like what I'm doing or they praise me too. And this is the second lesson in dealing with failure. The first one is that comparison often leads us to feeling like a failure and isn't a good barometer on whether we're actually failing. It just makes us feel like it. The second one is this. Just because you haven't been praised for your work doesn't mean you're failing. I can't overstate that. You know, without positive feedback, I, we just naturally drift. And I might just be speaking for myself, so forgive me. I don't know who else to speak for. But without positive feedback, it's really easy to drift and start feeling like you must be doing something wrong. This has uh, never been true for me than during the pandemic. When I preach, I like feedback. I like to know how I'm doing. And I want to know if I'm doing a good job. Well, if I'm preaching to a, a camera, have everyone online, and I'm only preaching to a camera, and I don't get a nod or a smile or a laugh, oh, I can't help but wonder if I'm failing. And I know I'm not the only one who's felt that way in the midst of a pandemic and being separated from people and just human interaction. It, this void of human interaction can sometimes get filled with feelings of failure. It might have been filled with other things for you, but I know for some of us it was filled with wondering whether we're failing. Without feedback, fears of failure can creep in. But a lack of praise doesn't mean we're failing, by definition. You know, here's the thing. People are fickle. And in the world, people praise whatever is loud and whatever is popular, not always what is good and what is true. In God's upside-down kingdom, God is grateful for the good and the simple and the honest and the humble. Sometimes God is just thankful to watch people be faithful with what they've been put in, with what God has given them to do. And people will not always appreciate what God has asked us to do and where God wants us to be faithful. We won't even understand just how important those things are. So just because you didn't receive praise from the world doesn't mean you're failing. Now there's a deeper issue here. And this deeper issue leads us to lesson uh, three on failure, the third lesson on failure. David was well-loved by everyone. And by everyone's silence, I have no doubt that Saul felt unloved. Now, once again, it's never said that they don't love him, but by their silence, he felt unloved. That's my guess. I'm interpreting the text, especially based on his behavior and some of his emotions later on. Felt unloved. Or, at least, he didn't feel as loved as David. And here's the interesting thing about that. Feeling you're not loved as much as someone else is the same feeling that you're not loved at all, even though those aren't the same thing, right? In short, Saul likely felt unloved, at least in comparison to how they loved David. And feeling unloved is fertile ground for feeling like a failure. In fact, I would say this. Feeling loved, knowing that you are loved, is the difference between seeing failure as what you do versus seeing failure as who you are. Knowing your love makes that difference. I don't know any other way to move from a place where you have been able to see failure as something you do. We all do it. 
to wrestling with and feeling like, because I do these things, I'm a failure. Knowing that you are loved is how you help separate those two. Because knowing that you are loved, you know that your worth is not in your actions or what you do, but it is in who you are and whose you are. Not just because you belong to God, but because you belong to a community, because you belong to a spouse, because you belong to a partner, because you belong to a group of friends, and you are loved. So before we go any along, if, if you know you are loved, it, it is a hundred times easier to see your mistakes as simply mistakes, things that you did. They're not a part of your identity. But if you struggle with feeling unloved, it's a hundred times easier to see your mistakes as a reflection of yourself, as further proof for why people don't like you. You know, it's not just what you did, it's who you are. That's the cost of feeling unloved. We internalize failure and we begin to allow it to shape our identity and that's where failure becomes dangerous because everyone will fail, but no one should feel like a failure. So let me just say this before we go any further. I don't know where you're at or how you were raised or whether your parents ever told you that they loved you, they should have more than once. I'm trying to do that with Finn, not to brag. I just think it's funny, because I'll, I'll tell Finn, I'll say, hey, Finn, guess what? And he'll be like, what? I was like, I love you. And then he gets annoyed. <laughs> you always say that. Every once in a while, I mix it up, and I throw something in random. Throws him off. In this church, we love you. With all your mistakes and idiosyncrasies, as a Robin Williams character says in Goodwill Hunting, if anyone's familiar with that movie and that scene, he talks about his wife, who's no longer with him. And he, he talks about how she, uh, how, she, uh, how she would fart when she was nervous. This is Goodwill Hunting, great movie, I, I recommend it. And he said, no, 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 all those little things that no one else knew about her that some people would see as flaws, that was the good stuff. You can Google it. Just Google, you know, Goodwill Hunting, that's the good stuff, and you'll find the clip. That's the good stuff. In our faith, God sees you and loves you. He sees the good and the bad and the nervous parts, and God sees you and God loves you. You are not a failure. We all mess up. To err is human, but you are not a failure. I wish someone would have told Saul that. If they had, maybe he would have handled this differently, but they don't. So here's what happens next. Verses 8 and 9 says, Saul was very angry. This refrain, this song, displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time, Saul kept a close eye on David. One way to translate that is Saul became jealous of David. That's how some texts handle this uh, strange Hebrew word. But he kept a close eye on David. He started looking at David differently. Now, there are two sides of this conversation. We've got to give Saul the benefit of the doubt. We're trying to help Saul become human. On the one hand, Saul, as king, should absolutely be worried about David taking his job. That is only reasonable. On the other hand, not so reasonable, not so healthy, it appears that Saul internalizes it. He allows it to turn into anger and jealousy and deep displeasure becomes frustrated and angry, and it colors the rest of Saul's leadership. 
as a result. In fact, we see here the turning point for Saul. He allows his anger to color his entire perspective. I think at this point, Saul hasn't done much wrong. He's, gotten, he's got his struggles. Um, he's even, he's even uh, if you read his story, it's really a story about mental health. He's, he struggles with a lot of different things. He struggles with anxiety and depression and anxiety, uh, insecurity and anger. And David, who's also a musician because he's the the, the action hero who's also a poet because David is loved that much. Like, he's such a cool dude. But David also plays music for Saul as well as kills all of his enemies because David is awesome. But Saul loves David's music and listens to it and it helps calm his fears and helps, call, you know, helps him really what I would interpret as struggles with mental health. The biblical text talks more about it in a spiritual warfare way. There's lots of ways to look at it. I'm not saying it's one or the other. But we see fact is a great example of that. Um, and, and here's the thing. I struggle with mental health. You know, um, but I don't think that makes me a failure. It doesn't mean that I can't lead. And I think the same is true for Saul up to this point. No one, uh, he hasn't done much wrong at this point, but then he makes the mistake that is at the root of failure. He gives into jealousy and fear and anger and insecurity. He gives into it, he leans into it, and he acts on it. And here's why this is a problem. Because he is a person with power. And people with power who act out of places of insecurity cannot remain in power. It becomes a justice issue. It doesn't take very much to connect those dots. You look at the world, you look at leaders. When, you, when, you, when leaders begin to operate out of anger, jealousy, or insecurity, they begin to use their power for their own purposes. And then you can't, that person can't be leading anymore. It's not good for anyone, it's not good for them. And it's not good for the people, and it's not good for the nation. And Saul internalizes his insecurity, and then now he has all of this power that he can use that to try to make himself feel better. And that's what happens to Saul. He says this, The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, and as he usually did, because David, you know, the great warrior poet, was playing for Saul to help calm his struggles. And Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. You can imagine the scene. David sitting in the corner playing the guitar, and Saul picks up the spear, throws it, misses, runs over, picks up the spear again. And tries to hit David as he's running away. Needless to say, their relationship is never quite the same after this. Now, I don't have time to go into the theology behind evil spirits from God, um, other than to say this. Saul's choice to be angry and jealous was all on his own. He made that decision in the previous verse. He leaned into it. He made plans to act on it. It was only after that that we saw a spirit fall on him. Now, one could say that this is a form of spiritual warfare, that evil spirits feed off of our anger and our jealousy. I wouldn't disagree with you. Others could say that this was a way for the writers to describe a visible transformation that Saul took place, that he kind of moved, something came over Saul, and he was not the same person anymore. Either way, we see a shift in Saul right here. He becomes evil. He tries to kill David. He throws a spear at him, which leads us to the fourth lesson in failure. When we feel like we're failing, it's all the easier for us not to want to see anyone else succeed. If you're at a place where you really struggle to see other people succeed in something, and I've been there many, many times, it might not mean that you're failing, 
but it probably means you feel like a failure. And there's some work to do, some internal work to do. Saul couldn't handle watching David succeed. He hated him for it. He probably believed his own mistakes, his own standing with God was David's fault. And this kind of thinking is really the worst mistake he can make because it prevents him from recognizing and learning from his mistakes. He became blind to what he's doing wrong. He's trying so hard to not feel like a failure that he becomes the very thing he fears. That's when he becomes a failure. Now, this isn't how God wants us to live. There will always be Davids in our life. People who are just so cool and they do things so well There's some Davids in this church. You guys are impressive. I'll just say it. But there will be Davids in your life. You're good, and you're impressive, and you succeed. It's going to happen. And this is where we want to head. This is what discipleship looks like. We want to get to a place where we can look at their success and celebrate. Even though that might be one of the hardest things you ever do in life. In fact, I would say that it's a sign of maturity. And I'm talking like sage sitting on a mountaintop meditating kind of maturity. Like this is sage level maturity. If this is a video game, this is like top level. You have, you have gathered the points necessary for this level of maturity. The ultimate level of maturity, mountaintop maturity, is to feel that you have failed at something, to feel that you, that you have nothing to offer in this particular area that, that you have tried over and over again. And maybe you can't escape the feeling that, that you are in the wrong place and you don't have anything. You can't be successful in this area. And and you can still be happy when someone else is. Whew. To be so comfortable with who you are and rooted in the fact that you know you are well-loved, not because of what you do, but because of whose you are. That you can lay aside your own insecurity and just be happy for someone who is doing it well. Now, I'll be honest, as humans, you might not want to do that in the moment. That's okay. But this is what we're aspiring towards. This is what we're growing towards. And I say this is true maturity because this is damn hard to do. That's not where Saul is, and it'll be, lead to his dis- demise, and I can't blame him. It is hard. Verse 12, he says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he went, sent David away from him, and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their commands. And in everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul, when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul, well, we don't have time for it, but Saul starts putting him in these positions of power in order for David to die. Um, he puts him into like the front lines and stuff, which is a trick that David maybe learned from Saul. He does that later with Uriah, if you're familiar with the story. But Saul is putting him into these military positions with the hopes that he'll die, and then you know they can mourn their hero, and Saul can go back to not having to compare himself. But here's the thing: the role of the king w- was a calling. Because Saul had become unfit to lead, because he allowed his insecurity to influence his power, he's no longer called by God. That's what's happening here. Uh, David is the, the, the next king. It's just a matter of time. But Saul is unwilling to give up. He won't move on, and he's not going to step down. That would require too much humility, and it would be humiliating to him. So this leads us to the last and fifth lesson for today on failure. And it might be one of the hardest, even harder than the one before. Sometimes we feel like we're failing because we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. We're just in the wrong role. See, we have many different gifts, many different roles, 
If we have many different gifts and many different roles, then it's only natural that we might find ourselves at times in the wrong role, in the wrong place, at the wrong time. And it takes humility to admit that. Saul shouldn't be king. Maybe under different circumstances, it would have worked out. But given where things were headed, he shouldn't be king anymore. And maybe he could have done a lot of other things. And this is where it takes just willingness to think creatively. And if you've lived in any sort of world in our society, career is such a tied into calling and people change careers all the time, you probably had to wrestle with this. And Saul could have wrestled with this if he could have overcome some of those barriers. But he could have been a lot of other things. He could have been successful at these things too. Maybe he could have been a great advisor or a cabinet member or, you know, not that they had cabinet members, but whatever the equivalent was. But, but it would require him to let go of his pride and move on. It's possible that if you can't escape the feeling of failure, it might be because you're trying to do something that isn't the right fit for you and it's time to move on. Now I want to caution you with this idea, because the opposite is also true. Just because you feel like a failure doesn't mean you're in the wrong role. Years later, there were many prophets who were called by God, who did exactly what God asked them to do, accomplished great things, but they often felt like failures. And they felt like failures because of one of the earlier points, because people didn't love what they were doing or what they were saying. They were prophets, they were challenging people, and so people hated them for it. And feeling unloved is fertile ground for feeling like a failure, and so they often wanted to quit. They wanted to give up. There was one moment where I think uh, one of the prophets is just devastated. He had just been, probably been the most successful he'd ever been as a prophet, but everyone hated him for it. So he lays down, he's hungry, he's tired, God tells him to take a nap, and he, in that moment, says, I just don't even want to keep doing this anymore. He reaches a place where he wants to commit suicide. He doesn't. And he hadn't done anything wrong. He felt like a failure because everyone else felt like he was doing the wrong thing. In those moments, God would step in and encourage them to keep them going against all odds. In other words, it's possible you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, but because of how hard it is, you feel like a failure. Sometimes you're in the wrong role. Sometimes you're just in a hard role, and it's just hard, and there's no way around it. And the thing you need is encouragement from people who know and love you. And telling the difference between Saul, who needed to step down, and a prophet who just needed encouragement, that's hard. It takes wisdom. You need that sort of mountaintop sage individual. You need someone who's wise, mature, someone who knows you, who can encourage you. I was thinking about this. This isn't in my notes, but I'm going I'm to step out aside here for a second and talk about it. We need people in our lives who can be honest with us, who can give us hard feedback, but also encouragement. Now, I've seen countless times where people encourage other individuals that they know and love. And they say, hey, you know, you just got to keep going. I know it feels like you're failing, but you're doing a good job. People have told me this. And I'm thankful for those who some of you in the room have told me this. Our board usually tells me this. So thank you. We need those people in our lives. I've also seen it happen where people will say, hey, you're doing a good job. You just got to keep going. This is just hard. And the person doesn't really believe it. They're just being nice to me. They're just being nice. And when that happens, what, what's really happening under the surface is if you do that, if I do that, we are trusting our own insecurities more than the person we're talking to. So we just got to name it. You trust your own insecurities more than the person who's saying something positive to you. And so at least be honest with yourself about that. And who are you going to trust more? I don't know who you should trust. Not everyone is trustworthy, and not everyone's opinion is equal. 
But I guarantee you one thing you shouldn't trust, your insecurities. <laughs> like, don't. They're not helpful. And when we lean into them and we trust them, it's no good. So conclusion, here's, here's what I want to just, here's what we're talking about, five, five ways, five things related to failure. We're going to dig into some of these maybe more next week as we spend some time with Judas. Here's the first one. Comparison will make you feel like you failed even if you haven't. It's, comparison is not a good barometer for how you're doing. Um, it, it can be maybe in certain settings, but generally speaking, if you're comparing yourself to somebody, it can be very unhealthy and it can make you feel like a failure even if you've done nothing wrong. Number two, just because you haven't been praised for your work doesn't mean that you're failing. We've got to check ourselves. It's hard to exist and to work without positive feedback. Some people need positive feedback more than others based on how they work and based on their personalities. It's hard when we don't have it, but just because it's not coming, we've got to check ourselves when we default to thinking, I must be doing something wrong. And uh, one way to do that is just ask people, honestly. Number three, feeling unloved is a dangerous place for failure. If you already feel unloved, then failure is going to constantly try to, try, to, to, try to impact your identity. And we have to take failure and make it something. This is not who I am. Robert Caldwell with the racism stuff talks about this a lot. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, it took me a while to figure out even what he was saying. But when we talk about racism or anything else, it's not about, it. it's not about who I am. I'm a child of God created in God's image, loved by God. It is about what I'm doing. And that's what I'm changing. We have to be able to separate who I am from what I do, from what I think, from what I believe. That's not my value. So feeling loved is an important part. That's, that, that should shape our identity. The, the ultimate level of maturity, number four, is to celebrate other people's success, even if it's in places where we've failed. That's hard. But that's a goal we can kind of work towards. And you can celebrate other people's success, even like I tried to do that and I failed and you did it. You know, um, you see this a lot in a lot of different places. And it all is an pr- issue of perspective. It's just a really, it's an important issue of perspective. I've seen Olympic um, athletes who are so in love with the challenge that, they, that, that even if they fail at that challenge a dozen times, when they see someone else accomplish that task, that really difficult trick or whatever, they get excited about it. And so they love seeing other people overcome something that is difficult for them. But then I've seen other Olympic artists, and I think there's been a number of Olympic athletes this last season that, that were, it was so wrapped up in their identity that it wasn't an issue of them failing and other people maybe succeeding. It was an issue of them seeing themselves as a failure. Do you see what I'm saying? And it's a, it's a perspective shift. So maturity is being able to see other people's work as a success. And number five, sometimes we feel like we're failing because we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that's only true if all of the other four ones, um, could, if you've walked through all the other four ones. You know, first, first you got to see, are you, do you feel loved, you know, et cetera. So, but sometimes, you know, we just need to try something different. Um, and uh, having wise people in your life to help you see that um, or to help you continue on is very important. We'll spend more time with these uh, thoughts as well as some others next week as we look at Judas's story with that. Uh, will you pray with me? God, we come before you. We give you thanks. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fall on us, that you would help us remember what it means to be loved, so that we might know who we are in Christ, and that we might help other people form their identity and love, that we might be a place of encouragement. Lord, help us to encourage one another, help us to be honest with one another in a way that's actually helpful and not judgmental. Help us remember what it means to be 
a beloved child of God. We give you thanks that in our weakness you have made us strong. And that you don't love us in spite of our weaknesses, but sometimes because of them. You have called us to be your children, a people who need you. And if we weren't weak, we wouldn't need you. Help us lean into it, knowing that we are only human. In your son's name, the human one, we pray. Amen.